So I'd originally planned on stopping the video here, but I got an awesome opportunity to talk to one of the original authors of this paper, Jonathan Godwin. And in that conversation, he helped me understand that their use of noise, which was a detail I'd kind of glossed over when I read the paper, is actually critically important to understand why this model generalizes just so well. And it's a very distinguishing feature. So if you would like to hear about this and some other great insights from Jonathan, you can check out that interview right now. Jonathan, thanks for uh, taking the time and, and uh, talking to me about this paper. Uh, super interesting. Can you uh, start by just introducing yourself a little bit and where you work and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm Jonathan Godwin. I'm a research engineer at DeepMind. Um, uh, so, I, and I work on the sort of structured intelligence team at DeepMind and, and working on sort of graph nets and, and, and simulation. Um, I've been at DeepMind for a few years now, and before that, I worked at some startups uh, also working in machine learning. Awesome. So, um, I guess we'll get right into it. You, you mentioned that that group had worked on these sorts of methods before. And, and I know uh, interaction networks came out of Peter's group or, or somehow associated with him. Um, so what's different here compared to these prior approaches that, you know, this isn't the first time that these graph based methods have been applied to physics simulation like problems. So what do you think is the key kind of difference here? Yeah, so I think I think we've got a few uh, contributions here. So I think that I think one is that we're we're trying them on on I think large scale simulations, or well, larger scale than they've been done before. So I think one of the contributions that we took something that we thought worked on smaller problems, and we could see if it worked on larger problems that we thought were more complicated, which is these simulations. So I think that's that's one thing, which is just taking taking something small and scaling it up, and, and actually it works pretty well. I guess that's a trend that you see in a lot of areas of machine learning. And then I think another contribution which which made made it made it work well is that we've added random noise to the input velocities and asked the model to correct for this noise. And you, you can kind of imagine this like um, a little bit like data augmentation. You know, we're sort of sampling um, uh, as if the model had got something slightly wrong and asking the model to learn to correct for itself. And we noticed that this made quite a big difference in avoiding sort of large accumulation of errors during rollout. So, you know, often if you just train on a sort of single step, you'll make a, a small, small errors, and then eventually you'll get so out of the distribution of the training examples that the model has no idea what to do. Uh, and then you just get these catastrophic errors. And I think, I think adding this random noise meant that the model sort of learned to be a bit more robust. And so we thought that we were at least in our experiments, we found this was quite important. So I think those are sort of two two areas where I think we push push the boundaries and combining them led to these sort of what what I think are great results. Yeah, uh, totally. So the the other uh, papers that were referenced, like uh, DPI nets, they were just more specialized, and you know they had a lot of stuff that was in there to to make it work but then it sort of limited yeah. the domain. But something about your approach had made it work across a broad set of domains and not need these kind of fine-tuning tweaks. Do you think that comes down to the uh, adding the noise to the inputs, or do you think there's some other aspect of, of the design of this that made it generalize better? Yeah. 
I mean, so I, I think that um, the majority of it came down to the, to the noise of the inputs. I think that some of the things that that more broadly make GraphNets generalize well, like um, like the locality. Uh, you know, we've got ten steps of message passing, so that kind of means that ten steps within your radius of nearest neighbors. You know, that's that's how much communication you can do for a single node. But that also means that you that you don't need uh, sort of global information. So your the sort of the size of your simulation can continue to scale and can continue to work because actually it's only local information that matters for the prediction, at least in, in these simulations. Uh, for other simulations, you can imagine that that's just not the case. Um, um, so I, I think I think that's but that's that's general to graph nets. I, I think really for us, like we we sort of found this noise. It's a very simple thing. It's kind of like this one simple trick makes your model work. But I think I think for us, this was really the most important thing to to gain that stability, which I think the other models did by adding in these these, these constraints. Yeah, in some sense, it seems intuitive. But in another, just thinking about physics and the so-called butterfly effect, right? Like these small changes in initial conditions can lead to totally different behavior on longer time scales. So I, I was struck that by doing that, you were still able to faithfully recreate the simulation data as opposed mm -hmm. to generating a sort of equally plausible but different reality or outcome. Do you have any sense for why that's the case? how come perturbing these things doesn't lead to just a divergence of a different type of behavior, but still realistic? Yeah, because I, th I think in some ways our training regime um, kind of gives you a, a noisy input and you kind of deep need to denoise that input and then predict what would happen from that denoised input. I sort of, I think in some ways, the way I think about it. So um, our, our training regime doesn't, say uh, I'm going to you know, predict the next step and then I'm going to ask my simulator to uh, run from this prediction next step to the next step and I'm going to use that as my target, uh, which I think would give you this sort of variation in rollouts. We're really asking the model uh, training time to snap back the, to the trajectory um, that we kind of messed up with this noise. And I think that leads to quite high fidelity simulations versus sort of plausible simulations across slightly different trajectories as you're accumulating different um, different sort of, uh, as you're accumulating error and then getting into areas of the training distribution, which you might not have seen in the past. So I guess um, the training task is subtly different. It's not necessarily predict the acceleration, but it's predict the correction that leads to the correct acceleration because we added this perturbation. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, you, you've got to learn to, to add that correction in. Uh, that's, that's correct. Yeah. And then I think that's, that's, that correction is what gives you the, the uh, high fidelity simulations. That's really and interesting. In, in fact, you can test this out uh, on a, we've, we've just open sourced uh, the, the training code and we have this as a parameter. So you can see the effect of sort of going from um, no correction to full correction. And you can see the effect that it has on the rollout. So if you would like to try that yourself. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I forgot to mention that you guys did just open source this. I know you had said in the paper you were going to, but that's finally out. So I'll make sure to put a, a link to that in the description. Um, so onto the application. What do you think is uh, 
the most exciting, at least in your mind, application areas of this type of work? Is there like a, a broader problem that the research group is trying to solve, or is it just sort of I had identified an interesting use case and it's sort of the end of it now? Yeah, that's a really it's a really good question. Um, so I think there are lots of, of interesting applications that, that you might think of. Um, you know, I know a lot of people when we talked about the model are quite interested in things like molecular dynamics um, and mesh-based simulation. Or perhaps using the simulation as a uh, as a as a as a tool in a reinforcement learning agent as a model for model-based reinforcement learning. You know, I think all of these are really interesting uh, directions. Um, you know, I think that the the one thing that our paper did show is that these sorts of simulations can scale to, to fairly large simulations. Um, and so maybe at some point, for, you know, for, for sort of scientific questions where simulations are really important, maybe you can have a learned simulation along the lines of, of the sort of things that we've done here. But I think all of the problems that I mentioned have um, you know, new, new challenges to them that aren't quite solved by a paper. Uh, you know, something like molecular dynamics, um, you know, maybe instead of pairwise interactions, you've got three-way interactions. You have long-range forces, which might not be catched uh, with multiple steps of message passing. Um, and you have, you know, the problem of, of having to take maybe uh, billions or, or millions of time steps to, to let's say, fold a protein, right? Like that's, that's, you know, that's something that really isn't solved by using your graph net. So I think that, um, I think that, that, you know, this is one step and, and, and to, to have real world impact, there are a few other challenges that need to be, uh, need to be solved. Great. Um... So one possible application I'd seen where people were training models on simulation data was for like real time graphics and simulation. Do you think this is a uh, a path forward for that? Or I, I know there were some references, I don't remember if it was in the talk or the paper itself, that it wasn't much faster than the simulation, uh, but there wasn't like a fundamental problem. It was just that that hadn't been optimized yet. So you're probably uniquely qualified to to talk about this piece of it. Yeah. So so I think that um, that certainly if we had spent a lot of time optimizing the code, we 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 could have made the inference time faster, and then I guess it could have been faster the the graphics and uh, the underlying simulator. Um, you know, particularly things like the nearest neighbors lookup. Um, there are certainly ways that you can make that faster. Um, and that was in our paper done on CPU, um, whereas you know you could you could do do some sort of fast nearest neighbor scheme on GPU in the inference loop on device, and that would be a lot faster. So, so I think certainly like you, you could you could say that these things these things are faster. I think maybe you could also do things like um, maybe have a sort of coarser model. Maybe maybe that could be. Faster still, maybe you can just add a sort of efficiency by taking sort of multiple time steps. Uh, so, so, so course time steps. Um, so, so I think I think that's certainly a sort of area. But I, but I guess I guess the sort of the challenge to that is is if you're thinking about real time graphics in the sense of um, you know really high quality rendering. Um, you know, we didn't go into that rendering zone. And if the rendering is actually what's taking you a lot of the time, then maybe maybe this isn't going to be any faster. Um, you know, what what 
what we've done is, is we, we have a particle-based simulation and, and we predict the, the positions of the particles in the next next phase. So if that's the expensive bit, then we're going to be faster. But if the sort of high-def renders, um, which, we, which we showed, which you can derive from our particles, if the high-def renders are taking a lot of time, then, then we're not going to have much speed up for you. So what are you using for implementing these message passing? Like DGL is a popular framework, but I think you guys had built something on top of TensorFlow, uh, like a GraphNets library yourself, right? Are you responsible for maintaining some piece of that? Or Yeah, that's right. So our team, um, Alvaro, one of the co-authors on the paper, um, um, built and maintains a GraphNets library on top of TensorFlow. So, but in terms of, uh, sort of our um, our, uh, our work and how we managed to make this, this performant, uh, I think a key part of that was our usage of TPUs. So I think this is one of the first times, or an interesting thing about this paper has been um, the fact that we distributed out a single graph across multiple TPUs hmm. uh, during training time uh, to speed up training. Um, uh, and, and a lot of the infrastructure that's built into TensorFlow makes this pretty easy. Um, I think some of the some of the stuff uh, with uh, TF Estimator means that that you can train these really really large models, uh, and, and this allowed us to train some of our larger simulations in a day or two, where it would would normally take like a week. Oh, and this, wow. This this, uh, this was this was uh, you know made our iteration cycle uh, a lot faster, and I think points in the future to really large scale um, simulations, learn simulations uh, on um, on TPU pods uh, or you know large scale interconnected GPUs like OpenAI use for their language models. Um, so I, I think that's an exciting direction in terms of the hardware um, and sort of engineering the graph neural networks. So I, I guess these sort of lend themselves easily to partitioning across GPUs since you know, the definition of the graph is locally spatial and you have these spatial coordinates. So it's, you know, it's sort of easy to partition across multiple GPUs, I'd imagine. Easier than a generic graph anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. So there's some locality structure that means the, the communication across GPUs is less than it would be in a totally random graph. And I also think that um, graphs, graph networks in general, lend themselves to this sort of computation because um, you know you apply a a model to every node independently. So that's a very easy thing to parallelize. Mm. Whereas yes, um, the convolutional network, you've got to um, it, it's it's a slightly you've got a, a slightly more difficult. Um, a parallelization scheme, right? You've got to do maybe pipelining, or you've got to have model parallelism, um, and you know that, that's a that's a slightly more difficult thing to wrap your head around. But I actually think graph networks are a good example where you can do some, some sort of um, you can distribute your model across many chips in quite an easy to understand way. Yeah. So, what do you think are the important open questions of this line of work? And are there like any key challenges to overcome that are sort of generic, or do you think they're sort of application specific? Um, yeah, so so I think that um, so I mentioned I guess a, a few of them when I spoke about you know, perhaps different applications. 
one thing that was in the paper is that we we, we, we didn't deal very well with rigid uh, rigid body objects. Um, so you know we clearly need an improved approach for simulating uh, sort of rigid bodies or elastics. You know our, our approach doesn't really work with those. Um, and I think you know some of the other things are, are um, uh, more fundamental than that maybe. So um, you know we with our ten steps of message passing. We work well with um, problems that are sort of intrinsically local, but many sort of real applications have this global structure. Let's say you've got sort of global long-range forces which aren't going to be calculated from your ten steps of message passing. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you need a different architecture for that. That's, that's not going to be in, in the GNS, um, or maybe you've got three, four-way interactions, and again, that's going to be pretty difficult to approximate with with uh, the pairwise interactions of the current graph structure. So I think those are sort of, sort of really important things to try and resolve. Yeah, so what's your intuition for why the rigid body would have an issue? Because to me, that, that seems sort of straightforward in, in an, a naive way of thinking about it. It's just like you kind of memorize the relative position to another particle and, you know, if it rotates, I don't know, like a, there's only rotation and translation Right and and everything else should be more or less constant. So I don't know why this would struggle there. Any ideas? Yeah, I think that's a that's, that's a good question. So I think that um, I sort of share some of that intuition, and I think to a certain extent we saw that. So we we have a rigid body in water, uh, and we found that it, it sort of somewhat kept its 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 shape, and over time it deformed. Um, so uh, the sort of the perfect memorization wasn't there, but clearly some sort of degree of memorization was taking place. Um, so I think I think that that it, but that sort of points to the question that there's no hard constraint there, and it, it seems to be quite difficult to learn that hard constraint. Mm. Um, and I think the the, sec the second sort of question is uh, rigid bodies interacting with one another so that's sort of collisions and I think that is that's that's a harder that's a harder thing because you've really got to propagate forces in some ways sort of long range right if, if you have a, a large rigid body um, you know you, you don't have any deformation when they, uh, they they hit towards one another yeah uh, you know, they collide that so there's an instantaneous communication from one end of the rigid body to the other it's really got to be absolutely right. perfect and it doesn't quite work like that, right? So that, that's almost like a long range, long range course. So I think like um, you know, huh. the sort of collisions are, are, are a bit more difficult. But, you know, maybe you have something like an elastic as well. Um, you know, that that seems to me like you've got to have some sort of knowledge about the rest state of your elastic material uh, if you're going to uh, get your model to work well. And there's nothing in our model that, that says that, that you should have that sort of information. Wow, that's so, really um, interesting. So, outside of this work, what other problem areas have you excited? Yeah, so so I um, I've worked on uh, medical imaging in the past. That was my first sort of project at, at DeepMind on on mammography, um, and, and I, I think that um, you know continued work on on uh, medical imaging and applying AI to health has has sort of the the real scope for. for Great real-world impact, and it's exciting to see Google do more of that. And so I'm, I, I'm, I'm just generally excited to see how that that pans out. 
um, and all the sort of developments that have taken place in sort of fundamental AI, if you want to call it that, stuff like graph networks or, or all of the sort of language models, you know, how that applies to the healthcare space. I think that's an exciting area. Are you working in that domain right now or just something you're watching with interest? It's something that I'm watching with interest, you know, so, so um, you know, DeepMind Health got moved to, to Google Health and I stayed with DeepMind, so, so Google are doing all the, mm. the health AI work. Gotcha. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at interest from afar while, you know, continuing to think of a way uh, on, on, on things like rock nets. And this is, I guess, a pretty related question, but are there other researchers or, or groups that you're following with interest and uh, sort of keeping up with on the cutting edge? Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's always a difficult question because there's so many groups that are doing interesting things. But I think, um, you know, the, the, the people that we collaborated with on, on this project uh, from Stanford, so Rex and Yuri, um, they're great, great, great people. Um, so, you know, I think they, they do great work. And, and I also want to call out those for thanks because I, it, it wouldn't have been the same project without them. Uh, so, yeah, so thanks very much to them. Awesome. Anything else you want to talk about or uh, plug? Like, do you have a blog or anything like that? Um, just just to sort of stay tuned to what our, our group is doing. I'm sure we'll be um, releasing some new things soon uh, along, along sort of graph net lines. Um, so yeah, keep 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 your eyes on the the DeepMind um, blog or, or follow Peter and, and Toby who are, and Rex who I know on on, uh, on Twitter. Got it. Yeah, um, I'm sure I'll be reaching out to you once I see those announcements. So thanks for taking the time and and uh, helping me wrap my head around this. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. All right. Take care, Jonathan. See ya. I hope that diving into this paper wasn't just interesting, but also gave you a deeper intuition for the role that graphs can play in learning problems, as well as the assumptions on which they rely. See you next time.